to thank you uh, for receiving me very graciously, and uh, I look forward to whatever the Lord might do today, starting with a joke. <laughs> and I think, you know, I'm leaving as soon as we leave here and going back. So this is going to be uh, an oldie but goodie. I don't know if you've heard it before or not. You know, sometimes I forget where I've told certain jokes, and Mark steals all my jokes anyway. So I, uh, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but I, it was one of my earlier favorites. You know, um, Adam was sitting in the garden after the creation, um, and all the, all the animals, you know, had, that he had named had mates. And so he was sitting in the garden talking to the Lord one day, and he was, he was uh, just mentioning to the Lord, I, I don't have a mate. You know, every, everything else in the, in the garden is male and female. He, he, I don't have a mate. And the Lord said, oh, Adam, I've got something planned for you that you, you, it's going to be so wonderful. You'll have a hard time wrapping your head around it. She is going to be called woman, most beautiful creature imaginable. You will never see anything any more spectacular and beautiful than she'll be. She's going to be so sweet that all she thinks about is your welfare. And she will look after you. She will bring you breakfast in bed. She will be passionate, loving, everything imaginable. And Adam said, wow, Lord, uh, that must, you know, cost me an arm and a leg for something like that. What can I get for a rib? And the rest is history. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Sometimes I have to balance the scales for the ladies, you know. So there's another one that uh, goes, you know, Eve was sitting in the garden talking to, to the Lord and saying, uh, you know, Lord, you know, I see all of the other animals have mates and everything. I'm wondering about me. And uh, so the Lord said, well, Eve, I've got something planned for you. He's going to be the handsomest, best-looking, nicest, most loving. He'll be absolutely anointed in your defense and protection and providing for you and your family's needs. He's going to look so good, you will just be amazed at, uh, at what I've got planned for you. And he said, but there's one little flaw um, you know, one little thing I have to warn you about, he's going to have an ego as big as a house, so you're going to have to let him think I made him first. <laughs> so, just being sure I'm not falling in the pattern of a chauvinist or something, so anyway. Well, again, um, you know, thank you for uh, allowing me this privilege of speaking into your life. And, uh, you know, I, I have been talking, obviously, about uh, the parable of the sore because it is, in terms of revelation, one of the most basic principles of truth we need to be aware of. And we need to understand it. And that's what revelation is, understanding. And a lot of times, revelation comes simply by prayer and the quickening of the Holy Ghost. A lot of times, it comes through the ministry gifts which are anointed for that purpose. And so I felt it appropriate that uh, we spend time on the parable of the sore because as Jesus said in Mark 4, 
if you don't get this parable, you're not going to get any of them. It's that basic. And he said in verse 26, I believe it is, that this is how the whole kingdom of God works. So is the kingdom of God. And so, you know, we, we have spent time talking about uh, the parable of the sower. And one of the most important points is that it's really not about sowing. Even though it's called the parable of the sower, it's really not about sowing. It's about cultivating the seed sown in your heart for the purpose of producing fruit. A lot of people, you know, have all of these things mixed up in their head like the parable of the sower. Okay, well, the fruit must be my harvest. You know, uh, that's what it must be talking about is harvest. And no, no, don't even think that way. This is about the fruit that the cultivation of God's Word in your heart will produce in your life. And it's synonymous with the growth of faith. Actually, this could be called a, a parable that talks about how to grow strong in faith and have a heart full of faith. But it's really got nothing to do uh, with reaping a harvest. The parable of the sower demonstrates rather, as I've just said, how to create fruit, arrive at fruit production as a result of the word being sown in your heart. That's an internal change. Harvest is going to be defined later in the word as an external change that comes from the seed you sow in other people's lives that is returned to you in this natural arena, external world that we live in as blessing. And so the parable of the sower, how do you generate fruit, which is internal, uh, that is defined by the word for us as, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, or long-suffering, temperance, all of the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5.22, uh, that's the fruit the Bible defines for us. When 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us uh, in the Amplified, that we are to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith and are producing the proper fruit of it. This is the fruit that faith will produce. This parable of the sower shows us how we grow in faith and the evidence will be the fruit that you produce. So if you are a person that you find that you are now loving people that you found it difficult to love and the way the Bible says we should, a desire to give to them, to pray for them, to encourage them, whatever the case may be, even though they may have treated you terribly, then you can rest assured that fruit is an indicator that you're growing in faith and showing the proper fruit of it, as the Word says. And so, you know, as we walk through life, that fruit that is, should, is and should be the product of the Christian life that fruit uh, is what people are going to partake of when you interact with them, when you talk to them, when you're with them. Uh, if you got the love of God, uh, you know, dominating your approach to a relationships, then uh, they're going to partake of that fruit of concern about you. I mean, you know, you've been with people that all they can talk about is themselves. Uh, well, you know, now you're going to find somebody that is interested in you. And wants to know about you. And it's genuine. It's not, it's not manufactured. And they, they're looking for things that perhaps they could do to bless you. Uh, 
and it begins to be something you partake of. You like being around that person and you're open to them. You like being around people that have the joy of the Lord and the peace of God on them. Man, you can be stressed out in a lot of turmoil as a result of something you faced and be around somebody that's just got that, got that peace and that smile and they're happy and they, you know, they've got the joy there bubbling up. You want to be around them because you partake of that fruit that they're producing. The next thing you know, your situation doesn't look quite so bad because of your time with them. Now, here's the key. I've got a piece of cracker in here somewhere. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to spit it out by mistake, but I was actually preaching one time. And I like to walk around and, and you know, and I'm so the front row in my church about right there. And this piece of peanut flies out and pops somebody right on the cheek. That's embarrassing, really embarrassing. So, But I'm glad you're sitting on the front row, David. You're in, in the line of fire here. But when people partake of your fruit, whether it's the love of God, the peace of God, the joy of the Lord, your patience with them and, and on all of their challenges, the moderation you demonstrate in your approach to life and, you know, all of these things will affect other people that you're around. And when they partake of your fruit, guess what else they're getting? They're getting the seed that produce that fruit in them. People oftentimes don't realize that one of the most effective ways of sowing uh, into another person's life is simply to allow them to partake of the fruit that is your life. And of course, uh, you know, that seed gets in you and you know what, what they are, who they are. You know that that's the, the Word of God working in them. And it begins to promote cultivation in your own heart of the same, the same things that they're living by and they're producing. So that having been said, one of the indicators to you whether or not you've come to a place of faith where you can change your circumstance in this natural world. And that's what faith will do. It'll take a sick person, make him whole. It'll take a poor person, make him rich. It'll produce success where there's been nothing but failure previously. This is what your faith is intended to do. Change the external world we live in. Yeah. <clears throat> and then when you do that, that external world that has changed will produce blessing in your natural life. So understand the distinction between fruit and a harvest. Fruit is internal. And of course, it is the indicator that faith has arrived. And now you are positioned because faith is the sickle that you put in to receive your harvest. The provisions of God in this natural arena we live in are yea and amen. Uh, they're there. But you reap the harvest by putting in the sickle. And the sickle is your faith. And so you know that you've got faith when you experience the peace the joy, the love, and these are genuine. I mean, when you can get, when you can get happy, in the, no matter what the circumstance, when you can uh, feel that peace that garrisons about your heart and mind and passes all understanding. You know, I've seen guys in combat that way before I even knew 
before I knew any of these things, when I was flying in, in Vietnam, Southeast Asia, uh, you know, some of the missions over uh, North Vietnam, the loss rates were horrendous. I mean, you're supposed to do 100 missions in order to get, you know, to go home, which normally would take anywhere from seven to eight months. And uh, sometimes, depending on a lot of different factors, it could be up to a year. It was either 100 missions or a year, whichever came first, and you got to go home. And less than one-third of the pilots that were assigned to those particular missions over the north uh, could hope to finish, less than a third. And so the morale during 67 and 68 was horrible. I mean, uh, guys would come back off a mission, head for the officers club and drink themselves into a stupor because, the, you know, the, it was just that way. And um, there were a couple of guys that never did. And, you know, I knew they were believers. I had talked to them a uh, fair amount. Uh, I was a believer too, but I didn't have what they had. And um, they were as happy, as positive, as certain of their destiny as anybody could be. They didn't, you know, as far as they were concerned, it didn't matter if 1,000 fell at one side, 10,000 at the other. It didn't matter. It wasn't going to come nigh them because they had a covenant with Almighty God. And that's the kind of peace in spite of circumstance. I don't care how dire the circumstance or how horrible the odds appeared to be against survival, you know, or in, in, you know, in any arena where threat is manifest in some way or another, could be threat of losing a job, threat of a, uh, a failed marriage, could be a lot of things. But that peace will garrison about your heart. And I, don't, I don't know why I got into all of this. This is all extra. But the point is, this is what makes life worth living. And this is an indicator that faith has come. When you have that peace, that joy, that capacity for love, all of the fruit that we've talked about, uh, you know, now you know you've got a sickle you can put in and take the harvest. Don't be trying to exercise your faith, you know, for healing or for some breakthrough in your, your business. You're not there. If you're filled with cares, if you're filled with animosity, unforgiveness, resentment, if you're filled with things that are opposite the fruit of the Spirit, that's your indicator that you're not in a place of faith. You need to spend more time, as we went through the parable of the sower, you need to spend more time seeking the Lord, breaking up the fallow ground of your heart, meditating, envisioning a future in your imagination that is in line with the Word of God. These are things that produce joy that produce confidence, that produce the peace, and then taking care of any competing ideas in your heart, you know, that would be fear-based or uh, lust-based, a desire purely for self-gratification, or that, uh, you know, we've already talked about all of this. But if you're not at that place where the fruit is in evidence in your life, you're not in a place where you're going to get your healing, not by your faith. God can all, always intervene with the operation of the gifts of the Spirit, but that's not the way we're to live. The just shall live by faith. 
And so essentially, you're not there if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit. And you need to focus more intently on the things we've talked about in our study of the parable of the sower. If you're going to have a sickle that you can put in and take your harvest. Well, let me talk about let me talk about the sowing and the harvest a little bit. I didn't mean to spend quite this much time reviewing the uh, parable of the sower. But we need a revelation of both. We need a revelation of cultivating seed sown in your heart. We need to cultivate revelation of sowing seed and then putting in the sickle of faith to, to take your harvest. And of course, the, the, the sowing of seed uh, it's fairly basic. We know the, the seed is the Word of God. And how can you sow that seed? You can sow it by, uh, first of all, speaking into the lives of the people with whom you have influence. In other words, they, they're close enough to you to, uh, you know, be subject to hearing what you have to say and then acting on it. And of course, um, I think as I start this process, by the way, I'm going to use another term, one that, excuse me, I have uh, used on many occasions where leadership is being taught, and I like to use the phrase, exercise of influence. Uh, that's really synonymous with influencing or sowing the seed of God's Word into somebody's life. You're influencing somebody to consider embracing the principles of God's Word in order to advance the cause that they're committed to or their life. And so influence really is, you know, when we talk about influencing or when we talk about sowing, we're talking about proliferating God ideas and principles and paradigms of life. You know, that's what we're talking about doing. When we're told to go ye into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature, we're being told in Bible terminology to influence the world in such a way uh, that they buy into the truth that the world of, uh, Word of God reveals to them. And, of course, that, that exercise of influence, uh, it, can, it can involve persuasion. Paul persuaded people. Uh, Paul made the statement that uh, he's all manner of things, all thanks to all men that he may win some to the Lord. In other words, we are to be sensitive to where other people are, where we can identify with them. We are to minister to them on a level that they're likely to receive. This is being intentional in influencing somebody. You don't just walk up to someone and say, you better accept Jesus as Lord or you're going to hell. I mean, uh, well, I guess, I guess some, some people might need to be slapped around a little bit like that. But, but most of the time, you're going to need to be sensitive, uh, you know, to where some, somebody is and, and, uh, and exercise influence the best you can. In the arena of leadership, uh, if you have to tell somebody they have to do this or have to do that, because you're signing their paycheck, and if they want to keep getting paid or want to get promoted, in, in other words, you want to be able to influence people to do this from their heart, or they're going to be limited in their ability to contribute to your goals and objectives right. as a leader. 
But the same is true where the Word of God is concerned. If you're going to be a sore, you need to see it as influencing somebody to make their own decision to buy into the principles of life that, that the Word conveys to us. So I like to use the word influence as a part of this process. And of course, when we talk about sowing, how are we going to perhaps influence people? Well, you begin by speaking to the people that lie within your sphere of influence. And according to the, um, you know, statistics that, I don't know if it's Barner or somebody else uh, has produced, but the average person who doesn't have a public platform of some sort uh, has a sphere of influence of six, six or seven people, probably their family and maybe a couple of close friends, something like that. But that's the average sphere of influence that somebody could speak into their life. And of course, the, uh, the other aspect of influencing somebody is your lifestyle the way you live. The Bible says that our lives are written epistles, meaning that they're going to be people perhaps beyond your sphere of influence uh, that you can actually speak to, but maybe co-workers or neighbors you know, close to where you live that have a casual acquaintance with you, may not be within your immediate sphere of influence, but they watch how you live, and they will. That's why your life is called a written epistle. They will watch you. And this is one of the ways of sowing seed, the truth of God's Word, lived out by you and observed by someone else. And so the second tier of sowing beyond speaking into the uh, lives of those that are within your sphere of influence is living it. And that reaches beyond those six or seven, perhaps, to co-workers, neighbors, etc. cetera. Uh, but the most effective and significant way of sowing is by using your finances to support the preaching of the gospel. Remember, the seed is the word of God. The only time we see the terminology sowing and reaping used in the Bible is on those occasions when that, uh, that money, that financial money, is being used to support the preaching of the gospel. Whether it's supporting the saints at Jerusalem, you know, so the word can continue going out, or, you know, uh, in any other arena, we are told that, you know, this, this is the thing that we do with our money when it's called sowing. You just give money to somebody you haven't sown anything. If all you do is give somebody a free meal, you give them some money, uh, you give them a little material help or aid, you're not sowing. Now, I'm not splitting hairs here. This is important for reasons of understanding. That's good, and you should do that because that's what loving is. And we're to live by the law of love. So you are to give to people unconditionally. But sowing isn't unconditional giving. You are believing for a harvest if you understand the Word of God. And so there's a difference between sowing and giving. 
And again, it's not a revelation that a lot of people have because they use the, the terms interchangeably. And that's okay. I'm not trying to split hairs here. But for the purposes of our functioning and an appropriate level of revelation, we need to see that just giving is a good thing. It is loving. It's something we should do. But it isn't sowing. Sowing is using your money to make sure the Word of God gets into somebody's heart that's beyond your reach. And this is where the most effective uh, influence is going to be exerted in this earth. There's a lot to say and not a lot of time to say it. But this is an important distinction that I think we need to make. You know, of course, you can influence people in a positive or a negative way. We're talking about positive influence. The only kind of positive influence is from the Word of God. The world deals in uh, many other kinds of influence that are negative and will have a negative result, will produce a negative harvest. You know, uh, the world operates on the basis of intimidation, threats, uh, manipulation. And of course, these produce responses in the, the people that are on the receiving end of this effort to influence them that are uh, would fall within the arena of cursing and death. It promotes that kind of decision-making in their life. When you're uh, influencing people in line with the Word of God, it pr promotes uh, decisions in their life that will be blessing and life. And so when you're talking about uh, producing a harvest, then what, uh, well, I'm not quite, I'm not quite. All right, let me read a couple of passages before I say what I was going to say. Lay a little more of a foundation here. I'll go to Galatians 6, 6 for a moment. And David and Mark both have already preached um, very well and effectively in these passages, but let me make a couple of other points or reminders. Verse 6 says, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. And of course, this isn't talking about picking out your favorite preacher, buying him a new tie or something. Uh, the, what's being communicated here, because in this day, the word uh, was spread uh, about the good news of the gospel and the principles of the, the Bible was spread by itinerant preaching. You know, guys that were going to travel or, you know, whoever would travel from one town to another and, uh, and preach. They needed a place to sleep. They needed food to eat, clothes to wear. And so this is the terminology, support them in all good things. But as most commentaries agree, it's talking about using money to enable the ongoing preaching of the gospel to people you in your life will never otherwise reach. In the real limited uh, uh, arenas of, of speaking into someone's life or even the way you live, there's a limited number of people that are going to get touched that the seed of God's word will be sown into that way. This is the way 
you can cause that word to go much further than it would ever go just on your own. And of course, the, you know, uh, there are many examples we could talk about uh, supporting the preaching of the word. It says, do it where you're taught. You don't arbitrarily just support anybody. And, and the, the reasons for that should be obvious. I mean, I, and I, I hear a lot of, I have heard uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, I, I gave to this ministry. Uh, they were about to go off the air if we didn't give to them, you know, and so we gave to them. But they don't really know much about them, uh, except that they had a name uh, as a Christian evangelist, some, something that prompted them to give. But they hadn't been taught by that person. So you don't know what they're teaching. This has a lot to do ultimately with the harvest you reap because you're supporting the word they preach. And if they're preaching that God makes you sick and that he uses sickness and disease to chastise you, and I know that seems like old hat for us in here because we've heard the truth for so long. But do you know that about 90% of the body of Christ still believes that kind of junk? And, uh, and so if you're supporting somebody that's preaching that, guess what kind of harvest you're liable to be experiencing in your own life? That's the word your money is enabling. So you know what's being taught by the people you support. And I think that's part, part of the reason he says that you do this where you're taught. You support the preaching of the gospel where you're taught. And then you know what you're supporting. But more than that, the word tells us that we are placed in certain companies of believers, people that we are to be associated with in ministry and joined with in ministry and, you know, uh, the power of striving together, one heart, one mind for the faith of the gospel is huge. So there are certain places, according to 1 Corinthians 12, that it pleases God to put you. And of course, that includes the church, the company of believers that uh, he's calling you to be a part of. And for churches, it doesn't stop with the church. For churches, it includes that stream of ministry, a part of the body of Christ where you're to be joined. It's like Paul said to the church at Corinth. It was a church he was speaking to. He said, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ. He said, but not many fathers. Yeah. He said, therefore, be followers of me in other words, there's definition given to where churches belong. And, of course, this principle of sowing upward to another organization or individual that expands your reach exponentially is the way you're supposed to be sowing, primarily the way you're supposed to be sowing. If we continued reading here in verse 7, he said, don't be deceived. And he says this right after he said to support the preaching of the word financially. That's what verse 6 says. Support the preaching of the word financially where you're taught. And then he says, don't be deceived. Meaning a lot of people are deceived about this. He goes on to say, this is what sowing and reaping is. Yeah. And God isn't going to be mocked. You know, you're going to receive a harvest appropriate to how you sowed, and you're supposed to sow where you taught and take the word beyond your sphere of influence by supporting other ministry and taking the gospel to all of the world. And this should be motivational. 
to your churches, uh, to your own life, to your ministry, uh, because basically the, the result of this is huge. I will use one small example in my own life because I consider it small. Um, you know, I opted out of, uh, there's no point in going back there. We were on TBN a long time ago for a while, and uh, that just did, never quite felt right to me. I'm a pastor. Uh, that didn't seem, I mean, it's, uh, you never knew who was going to be preaching in front of you or behind you. And it could just totally uh, contradict what you felt the word said. It just didn't feel right. And so I got off of, of television. And um, the Lord spoke to my heart, uh, and this was back in the late 80s, about doing something that we call the Winner's Minute, uh, which is a one-minute exhortation uh, on the basis of the principles of God's Word over the air into the secular marketplace. I didn't want to hit church people. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't what was in my heart, so I never told anybody I was a pastor. I uh, never told anybody we were a church. I would just show up, and I'd say, hello, I'm Mac Hammond. This is a winner's minute. And I'd take a 60-second uh, uh, truth from the Word of God, dealt with everything from raising kids, marriages and family, success in the marketplace. And, uh, you know, people thought I was just this, uh, uh, some kind of consultant or something, you know, trying to, I don't know what they thought. But... Uh, they didn't know it was ministry. They didn't know I was a pastor. And it took off. And, uh, you know, long story short, uh, today, this year, we will have reached, not reached, we actually have over 11 million views in one year of the Winner's Minute. On Fox, we are their biggest draw. We only buy a minute in the morning and a minute in, and later in the morning uh, but they put it on four or five times a day because it draws people to their, their station. And we've got great favor with them. <clears throat> but here's the point. Just that one little thing, not even a television broadcast, just a minute of truth from the Word of God. And, uh, you know, Nielsen ratings say that we've got about 50,000 people uh, that watch each minute and, uh, you know, or that watch the minutes during the course of a day. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll wind up with over 11 million views this year. Now, that means anybody that has supported our ministry <coughs> gets credited in the kingdom of God for 11 million people receiving the word of God. And that's, that's just me. I mean, there are a lot of people doing a lot more than we're doing. Think about Brother Copeland. How many hundreds of millions of people he must reach if we just, and David. I mean, you know, here's the thing. You know, there are places in the world I don't go and I can't, I can't preach and I can't reach even what, what I'm doing now. And so, you know, I support people like Mark. Uh, people that the Lord has connected me with, not just some arbitrary person, but someone who has taught me that I've heard the word from. I know where they stand. And he goes all over the world. 
And so when I, you know, support him, I am supporting not only on a personal basis, you know, the proliferation of the word, but everybody that supports me is now supporting Mark as well. And exponentially, you go from reaching, you know, 11 million a year to 100 to 200 million a year. This is the way we're going to reach the world. This is what the word says. Go ye into all of the world. Most Christians can't go ye, but they can do this. They can, they can responsibly, this is sowing. This is what sowing is. This is the major definition of sowing. If all you think sowing the word means is speaking the word to somebody that, whose life you can speak into, you're short-circuiting the whole deal. You need a little more revelation here. That's important because it's usually people that you're close to, your family, your friends, and that you would like to see and God would like you to use that relationship in order to promote their increase. That's important, but it's so short-sighted if you think that's it. Or if you think that, you know, uh, just living it. That's important, obviously, but you're limiting yourself. Sowing, for the most part, is defined by the word as supporting the preaching of the gospel. Galatians 6, 6 starts out that way. You don't support the preaching where you're taught. But then 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. This is it. This is the essence and the heart and the soul of sowing. Now, so how about the harvest? How about the harvest? How do you know what you're going to get in the way of a harvest? Because you need to know that. The Bible says that faith is the sickle, in so many words, by which you reap your harvest, bring your harvest in. But faith, by definition, means that you need to, you need to deliberately invest your believing in a certain way in order to get the desired result. Faith doesn't work on the basis of, Lord, just do thy will. No. You are supposed to know what will, his will is in certain areas and invest your faith in that. Whether it's healing, whether it's the marketplace, finances, or whatever it is. So when we talk about sowing and it's the basis and essence of the harvest you reap in your life, what do you need to know faith-wise in order to enable your faith to begin bringing those harvests in? Are you believing for a sack of coins to fall on your head out of heaven? Won't happen. What are you believing? Well, this is another subject that I don't have time to preach, but um, beginning with the tithe, which produces your first harvest, by the way. The tithe is not sowing. Do understand that. I hear people talk about sowing and tithing in the same breath. But the Bible says the tithe belongs to the Lord. It's not something that you are to engage in discretionary giving of. That goes to the Lord. It's His. It's how you qualify as His steward to manage and administrate His household, you know, on His behalf, which is what you're to do. Yeah, you're, you're, 
a joint heir with Jesus. You're a child of God. You're not a steward in the sense of being a slave to manage somebody else's property. You have the privilege of doing that. And so essentially, uh, the tithe is the way you qualify a steward. If you withhold what God says is his, why would he entrust you with any other earthly resource to manage on his behalf? So the tithe produces your first harvest because that's excess. Sowing is intended to be the uh, principle of increase in the kingdom of God. You know, you sow something so the word can go forth and he'll bring you back multiples. There'll be an increase. That begins with the tithe. He'll open the windows of heaven, pour you out a blessing. There isn't room enough to receive. That implies all of your needs are met. There isn't room enough in your heart to keep it. And there's excess to give. This is what makes you a giver. I'm spitting some stuff out that I usually spend more time on. But so that's your first harvest that comes from the tithe. Even though the tithe is not definable as sowing, sowing is the extra that you have after reaping a harvest. You can either eat it or you can use it as seed uh, to enable the preaching of the gospel to continue going forward. Okay, where do you want me to go from here? So, well, then, point being, when God says he'll open the windows of heaven, excuse me, and pour you out a blessing there isn't room enough to receive, you know, that does not mean that that he's going to just, like I said, drop a sack of coins on your head out of heaven. Windows and doors in the Bible are always indicative of divinely appointed opportunity. He opens doors that no man can shut. Windows are used in the same way. And so when you are a tither, uh, you can expect opportunity that you're going to have to step out in faith on And then there will be such an empowerment to prosper and increase, which is what blessing is. It pour you out a blessing that isn't room enough to receive. It's saying when you take that step of faith into the opportunity he opens to you because you've tithed, uh, then there's going to be such an empowerment to increase that it's going to meet all of your need And there'll be something left over, you won't even be able to receive it. You'll be so excited about God, excited about the Word, excited about what you know, you're now a giver. And so this is how you become a sower, a steward in the kingdom. And God gives seed to the sower. He gives you the financial capacity to underwrite the preaching of the gospel. He doesn't mandate it. Like the tithe, he says, that belongs to me. This is discretionary giving in his eyes. You can eat it or you can use it, like he says, as seed to underwrite the preaching of the gospel. But in the same way, the harvest that come to you from seed you sow, it's not coins dropped on your head out of heaven. It's opportunity. The first harvest demonstrated by the tithe 
you know, it, you know, windows and this is not a joke. <laughs> the, the deal yesterday was set up. I had asked somebody to call me and, uh, you know, yeah, I did. And, and uh, you know, I thought I'd tease Mark a little bit. So, oh, hey, Lord, how you doing? And how am I doing? Oh, thank you. Okay, I'll tell him that. Mark, God said to get your act together. So it was, that was for Mark's benefit. This was for real. I'm sorry. My ringer is now off. And I have completely destroyed my train of thought. Okay. So the first harvest is the result of the tithe, an excess uh, over what your need is. And so we can expect that the continuing harvests that come from sowing seed willingly now, you know, God says you can eat it, you can sow it, but willingly now we're going to sow seed, then of course, uh, you know, we should view it, the harvest, as being opportunity once again. Lord Sometimes, you know, somebody says, well, I had a rich uncle I didn't know I had that died and left me millions. Well, that may happen occasionally. But normally, your harvest comes as an opportunity. An opportunity in business, an opportunity in investment, an opportunity in vocational pursuit or partnership with somebody that's really, you know, on fire, knows what they're doing. Lots of different ways opportunity comes. But if you don't know what to look for, you'll be missing it. So this is, this is part of the faith deal. What do you, where, do you, where are you investing your faith? You're investing faith in opportunity. And you're looking for it. Because if you're looking for it, you'll probably see it. And if you see it, you can seize it. If you don't see it, you won't seize it. And you'll wonder why your harvest isn't showing up. One reason may well be you're looking for the wrong thing. You don't know what to believe for. Well, you can believe for opportunity, divinely uh, imparted opportunity. And when that opportunity shows up, you know, you're still going to have to take a step of faith. That's why this is a life of faith. You're going to have to believe this is part of your harvest now, and you're prayed about it, and you're going to step into it. All opportunity carries a little risk with it. So it's not an ironclad guarantee, and that's why faith is required. But you do take calculated risk, calculated in the sense of not defying good human rationale and not defying, you know, principles of God. You calculate the, the viability of the risk in terms of its potential return, believing then that this is a God-ordained opportunity, you take that step of faith. All right, now here's the clincher, I think. So opportunity comes through men. It may be the hand of God, but God uses people. Seldom does he do anything significant in your life without doing it through people. So, when we talk about exercising influence, which is another way of saying, in a godly way, exercising the right kind of influence, uh, that's another way of saying sowing, 
meaning supporting the preaching of the gospel, where you're taught in order to cause the Word of God to go much further than you could take it. You know, so when, when that occurs, when you take those steps, you look for opportunity, but it's going to come through men. God isn't going to appear in a little puffy cloud and say, go down here to the corner and try for this new job. It'll be a blessing to you. No, opportunity will come through men and I'm, I'm, I'm not being gender specific. Of course, that's men or women. But opportunity is going to come through people. And so for that to occur, I want you to see this. The exercise of influence from the earliest record of Scripture, uh, you know, influencing people in line with godly principle and godly truth. From the earliest record of Scripture, take Joseph, for instance, sold into slavery. Uh, man, he started at the bottom of the totem pole. And he did nothing more than live by the principle of God's Word. He wasn't corrupted by the world around him. He was true to the, uh, to the Word that he knew to be true in his life. He counseled and interacted with people throughout the accounts we see in Scripture on the basis of that principle. He's exerting influence, godly influence on his world of that day. And what did it do? It created great favor with everybody. Everybody he was around, he went right up to the, you know, the top of the totem pole from the very bottom, almost the top. Only the king was any higher than he was in terms of authority. So, the proper godly exercise of influence will always increase you in the favor of men or will increase the favor of men in your life. Always. Whether you know them or not, doesn't really matter because you're not going to know most of the people that have gotten the benefit of God's principle and truth because you supported the preaching of the gospel. They could be somewhere on the other side of the world. You'll never know them. You'll never meet them. Even though God sees you as having enabled that word in their life, yeah. uh, you know, you're not going to see them until you go home to be with the Lord. And they'll be part of your welcome home parade. <laughs> the abundant entrance yeah. uh, will be you know, part of that will be the broadways of heaven lined with people that are there because you used your money to enable the preaching of the gospel. And it changed their life. Every dollar bill you, get, you give, you should see it in terms of the lives that are going to be changed because of it. Because that's exactly what's happening. But just as surely as favor accrues to those who positively influence other people. We see that, you know, with Daniel. Daniel got caught up in the Babylonian captivity. And what happened with him? He lived his faith. He lived according to the Word of God. And the king, you know, valued his counsel more than any other. So we see favor always being a product of influencing other people on the basis of God's Word. Look at Proverbs 7 for a moment. Proverbs. All right. 
Proverbs 7. I'm not the, the fastest guy on these things. I just, did I say seven? Yes. No, you misunderstood me. I said three. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm going to do this from the Passion Translation because I like the way that reads, uh, this passage. So, the Passion Translation says this, My child, if you truly want a long and satisfying life, and consider this God speaking to you because that's what it is. If you truly want a long and satisfying life, never forget the things that I've taught you. That's the Word of God. Follow closely every truth that I've given you, then you will have a full rewarding life. Hold on to loyal love and don't let go. Of course, that's our royal law in, the, in our covenant uh, to keep yourself turned outward, focused on other people instead of yourself. And be faithful to all you've been taught. Well, that would include the most basic principle that the whole kingdom of God operates on, which is the principle of sowing and reaping. So, he might as well have said, be faithful to all that you've been taught, such as sowing and reaping. Let your life be shaped by integrity with truth written upon your heart. Again, shaped by the Word of God. That's how you will find favor. Say favor. Favor and understanding with both God and men. God first distributes favor to the men that he chooses to express that favor through. This is what you're exercising your faith for. You don't know who in the world is going to be affected by the word that you enable through your giving. But what you can do is know that influencing other people in line with the principle of God's Word always produces favor with God and with men. And I, the way I see it in, 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 you know, my mind is, of course, the favor that you generate with God because you're putting this priority uh, for your living in place, he will express that favor through men. Yeah. That's why it says, and men. So, when you give this way, you should use your faith for favor yeah. that will be demonstrated in divine, divinely appointed opportunities opening in your life that would not otherwise have occurred. God will pick out the men and the women whose favor can produce a level of blessing in your life that is appropriate to your need. Amen. Not anybody else's. He knows you. He will, he will work to produce favor with people that can address your life's need in a way that would bring blessing to you. And this is your harvest. Yes, thank you. So I think that one of the key understandings we need to have if our faith truly, you know, is the sickle that we put in to take the harvest. You need to know what the harvest is going to look like. It's going to be divinely appointed opportunity, who God intends it to come through, men that he gives you favor with because you've been faithful to influence your world with the principle of God's word. 
you will find favor. I've, I've been sitting in meetings before, you know, with bankers or, or, or business people that we're trying to do something with, and they don't know me from anybody, but it was obvious that I had favor with them. I mean, you know, uh, and I know myself really well. I don't know if I'd find favor with me or not, but they did. They did, and I didn't know them at all. And, you know, I believe that it's because, you know, we, we do this. We do what I'm telling you we do. You know, as an individual and as a ministry, I support others that, you know, I'm connected with, that God has connected me with, like Mark and like Kenneth Copeland. And, I mean, you know, because I get credited and all of our congregation or everyone that gives to us gets credited with whatever they do. And this is the way then that you, you promote and generate favor with men. I've been sitting in these meetings and you know, could not figure out why they were so favorably inclined toward, toward me. I had all kinds of arguments and uh, you know, persuasive things thought out that I would say or do. I didn't even need to. It was almost aggravating. You know, I didn't get a chance to, <laughs> a chance to, you know, persuade them myself because the Lord had given us favor. So that's how you put in the sickle of faith, I believe, as you give to support the preaching of the gospel all over the world. I am done, and I'm going back to Minnesota. Um, you know, I've got got a bunch of things to do up there, but I want to thank you, David, for the privilege of being with you guys this week, and uh, I love you. Bless you. And thank you all so much. I love you.